0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Umar Hanza, who is using Express and Node to build a custom video course platform. Umar, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site?
1: Yeah. Um, so very quickly, I'm, yeah, I'm Umar Hansa, and my website is moderndevtools.com, which is it's basically a course platform. That's, that's pretty much what we're going to be talking about today. It's a course platform in Node.js.
0: Okay. So is it safe to say then you are probably the only developer on this project?
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm the only developer. Um, There was one point, I think a few years back, the courses, I made it in 2017. But um, yeah, a few years back, someone wanted to contribute. They are, they're a designer. And um, they said, yeah, you know, you, you help me out, I help you out. It's that kind of deal. And when they asked for access to the Git repo, I realized, oh my gosh, I have a hell of a lot of secrets in here, as in, you know, tokens and whatnot. So I... I literally deleted the, um, the git folder, the dot git folder, and I had to start from scratch from that sense so that the git history was clean of secrets. Um, but apart from that one person, yeah, everything is, is all me.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a good, uh, a good catch there to prevent that from happening. Cause it's like, whoops, they just got my Stripe keys. <laughs> exactly. So you mentioned 2017. So did you develop this corp course platform then before you shipped your first course?
1: Yeah, um, I got a bit lucky with this because I I did a pre sale and when you do a kind of pre sale people, they're they're kind of understanding towards you, especially if you already have an audience, which I did, and they're understanding that you're still kind of developing the course itself, um, which includes the content, and I was in that that situation exactly, where it wasn't really ready. Um, You could purchase the course, but there was a lot of stuff that was half-baked and not there, but people are really understanding and supportive of that, so... Yeah, at, at that time, um, during the pre-sale, it, it wasn't all done. But then uh, as soon as the, the course announcement, so to speak, came into fruition, um, that's when it was all ready to go.
0: Nice. So how long do you think you spent uh, just building the platform?
1: Get, okay, so getting to the point of um, pre-sale, yeah, so the point where I could say, hey, like, if you're happy to and if you want to support me, you can currently buy this. And getting to that point was maybe two two months of work, I would say. Um, on and off. Um, I wasn't on it full-time. And I, yeah, I think for a side project, effectively, that's not not too bad. Um, and then getting to the point where, sort of forgetting about the content and the videos that I was making, um, just the, the sort of more, essentially the code that had to power this course platform, getting to the point of 100% completion, that would have been an extra like month, I would say. So three months in total, roughly.
0: Okay. And that's just like you say, side project, maybe you know, hour or two every night, maybe a little bit more on the weekend, stuff like that?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think for me, it was pretty much full-time on the weekends. I didn't have too many extra responsibilities. so I was fortunate in that sense. And exactly as you say, it was like one or two hours in the evening.
0: Yeah. It's funny with this stuff. Like I don't like to get too deep into the business side, but when you're working full-time in programming, it's like to go home and then hack away on your own stuff afterwards, you have to really want to do it. Otherwise it's like so easy to get burnt out.
1: Mm, Exactly. And different people are affected in different ways at different stages of their life. Um, I know for me, it was definitely a case of the younger I was, the more willing I was able, the more willing I was to do stuff like that. Um, Now that I have a a little bit more maturity, I'm like, yeah, maybe that's not the best work-life balance to adopt.
0: Right. Now, you mentioned, though, getting this thing off the ground pretty fast. I mean, you know, two months just on part-time work. Uh, Do you want to go into like what led to the ability to develop this so quickly? was with certain libraries and know that just really helped you out? Like, what was your motivation for using Express 2 in the end?
1: Well, I'll, I'll tackle the Express question because I think that's kind of interesting and I can answer it pretty quickly because the answer is is really simple to me. It was pretty much, what am I interested in? What am I currently interested in? And there's part of me that says, you know, if I have my, um, my enterprise hat on and I'm at a company, I say it's nothing to do with what you're interested in. It's what is the right tool for the job? Uh, in the case where I'm an independent developer and I want to do something that literally I'm just curious about and maybe even want to teach about in the future, which can lead to um, future revenue. Well, then there's my answer. It was Express. Um, There's other frameworks and tools which I think are great, like Ruby on Rails, which I used in university. And I I think I would have got started much quicker, but it just wasn't an interest at the time. And I didn't think I was going to make course content around Ruby on Rails. So that's why I didn't do that. So for better or for worse, that's why I chose Express. Yeah, and r- remind me the second part of your question.
0: Well, it was just like uh, your ability to put this together so quickly. Like, were there any key libraries in Node or Express that just really helped you out? Because getting all that together in that amount of time is uh, very impressive.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Um, I think there's a few elements to that. Uh, one was um, I was pretty like efficient. I, I previously mentioned I didn't have so many respons- extra responsibilities Happening in my life, so I was able to focus on that pretty solidly in the evenings and weekends. So time really helped me out. Um, But a bigger element which contributed uh, is a bit weird to to admit this, but the the pre-sale state was completely half-baked. I mean, there were so many features missing. If I'm not mistaken, I don't even think you could reset your password. So you could purchase a course, you make an account, but you couldn't actually, yeah, simple things like that, like resetting password. Um, other user registration abilities were just flat out missing. and this is why I put some emphasis on having a following where your users and people who care about you and your you know they care about you for the sake of you, it's having that is really helpful because they're able to support that state of things. So it's really nice that you say it's impressive, but the truth be told, like a little dark secret of mine is that it was not in a good state at all, which I don't think is a bad thing. It's just yeah. It, it wasn't ready yet. Um at most you could purchase the course. Um you could go through that checkout flow, but again, like error handling was non existent. Um reset password was not working. Um up changing your password was not working. Um and effectively not focusing on all of that stuff at the start meant that I was able to to get it out a lot quicker.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really cool that, you know, you just shipped it out there totally, you know, pretty much incomplete, but had still had the confidence to do that like I know for me it's it's very easy to get stuck in like perfectionism mode where you just spend forever working on it never shipping it
1: <laughs> exactly and um you just reminded me of another thing so is it um I think screen S E R E E N. screen is the name of the unix command line tool where you can run this kind of detached process if I'm not mistaken but um the reason I mentioned that is because normally when you make a Node.js application in production you have some sort of um process monitoring tool that you know it makes sure that it ensures that it's like restarted if it crashes. I literally went to my server, I typed in node index.js in the terminal and I used screen to detach it and I left and that was it. Um so it was yeah, it was incredibly I'm trying to think of a better term for half baked, but yeah, it was it was incomplete. Um, I didn't claim it to be complete at any stage. But doing all these things and really like accelerating my rate of progress just so you can make a checkout, nothing else. Um, I think that did help me get it out in those two months.
0: Right. So now fast forward a little bit afterwards where it's a little bit more fleshed out. Do you want to maybe get into some features of your platform for folks who have not taken your course? Like, you know, the scope of this could be anything, right? It's like, is there a video player? Is there like a way to post questions and answers? Is there, you know, things like uh video captions, can you search for them? Like, you know, just basically break down the platform if you can.
1: Yeah, sure. The course platform is really minimal in that sense. In terms of the the little feature suggestions that you were just saying, um, it is is nothing like that at the moment. Um, those are things that I wanna do for my next course, but in its current state, it's not there. And my, my mentality was, all right, well, I can either do all those cool things or what I'll do is I'll make pretty detailed, annotated lesson notes. And so what I did is I made a text alternative, I guess you would call it, a supplementary text, essentially, for every video lesson I made. Um, And the idea is I want people to be able to read that text and be able to digest exactly the same material that they would get from watching a video lesson. And I think I achieved that um, in a decent way. And that was my, I mentioned that because that was my justification for saying, right, well, while I've got that there, I'm going to say that this is a big part of the course platform. It is effectively textual-based lesson notes. So nothing fancy, but by focusing energy into that, it, me- it meant I didn't do things like video captioning or, you know, being able to mark lessons as complete and things like that. Um, that being said, that is this is exactly what I'm looking into right now. And being able to mark a lesson as complete, um, categorizing lessons. So you can filter it down by sort of beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Um, you know, maybe even saving the lesson state, those are things that I'm currently building and investigating.
0: Nice. Yeah, no, having that text option is very handy for, especially if you've taken the course once and you kind of just want to, you know, use the text as a reference to skim it later. That's like a whole nother potential use case, I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, You might be on, you know, on public transport, you don't have headphones on you. So maybe it's useful just to be able to read the, the lesson
0: notes. Yeah. So going back to building this application, were there some Node libraries that really helped you out?
1: Yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of things I'm using. There's, you know, my package.json file, which is in, in Node projects. It's how you specify your dependencies. My package.json file is pretty hefty. Um, fortunately, I've not used too many small dependencies, which I which I sort of take some issues with. Um, story for another day. But generally speaking, I still am... You know, I'm really using a lot from the community. So off the top of my head, I'm using one for exchange rate calculations. Um, I'm in London, the UK, and I want to set my price in pounds um, because of various political climates and whatnot. The exchange rate might may rapidly change, so I want to constantly. I want to say this is how much I expect to get. Um, it's it's around 70 pounds right now, um, and I want to do that conversion every few hours because. who who knows maybe it's going to change rapidly for me generally uh, customers people around the world they they associate and identify with dollars so um to actually get back to the question about what node projects am i using one would be an open exchange rates dependency which basically calculates that exchange rate for you using their api um another one would yeah it's it's um i guess it basically comes down to if i'm in the uk i want to make sure i'm i know what i'm getting as opposed to setting it in dollars and who knows, maybe the exchange rate goes against against me one day. And yeah, that won't be a good day then.
0: <laughs> so in my case, like technically, if I reloaded your page right now and maybe like three days from now, I might see a different price for now.
1: Yeah, most likely you will. Yeah, you'll see different prices, which I guess in itself is a bit weird. Like some people may hear that and think, oh, hold on, that's a bit, a bit unusual. Um, There's definitely part of me that thinks I could just, I could take that risk Essentially. That that's what it comes down to. It's a risk. But so far no one's really commented on, oh, hold on, it was ninety dollars yesterday, but today it's ninety one, what gives? No no one's actually um pointed that out. And I would even go as far as to say no one even realizes that's what's happening. So yeah.
0: Right. That makes sense. So you were saying though back to your uh package.json file. Anything else in there that's uh, worth talking about besides like left pad? <laughs> <laughs>
1: left pad. Um, so I've got uh, there's one called PayPal Express Checkout, which does a bit of the, um, the PayPal integration, which is quite nice. So I didn't want to get too heavy with integrating PayPal, but rather I wanted to ship it off to them. So in other words, I'm, I'm essentially using this module to uh, dynamically generate a PayPal URL, which embeds things like the price, the product name in that URL, obviously in an in encrypted format. And um, yeah, that just redirects you to PayPal. Um, They then, uh, I think it's, they hit me back a particular URL and then this module allows me to decode everything in in that um, redirected URL so I can extract information and make sure that the user paid the right price.
0: Wow, very cool. So like from your app's checkout point of view, you don't have like uh, whatever, you know, like 2000 2000 lines of JavaScript just messing around with uh, PayPal's API then. This is all just purely offloaded to them in that way?
1: Is exactly, which is one of the, the best parts, in my opinion, of using that module. Um, but it's interesting you say that because, on the other side of it, I am using Stripe. Because, I mean, is all, all good and whatnot, but some people, for whatever reason, they may not... You, you know, pay, PayPal can be a bit controversial in some ways, so maybe someone doesn't want to use them, and they'd prefer to use credit cards, so I do support Stripe. And there's another dependency, um, but what's interesting, it's interesting you say all those lines of code, because... Um, if I'm not mistaken let me see if I can yeah no I do remember now PayPal do have this nice friendly option where you can embed this nice tidy little um, I guess you would call it a JavaScript checkout thing where you enter a credit card uh, security code and expiry and it's all nicely contained it's nice but I know that including myself not all users are comfortable with the format that they were offering in, which is essentially if you visualize one input box and you kind of tab between different parts of the input box, which represent the different parts of your credit card number. Um, Maybe a terrible explanation on my part, but the point I'm trying to get at is when I realized that, hold on, this may not be so usable, I thought, well, let me deconstruct it and basically use my own input boxes, um, each one representing a different part of the credit card, and I'll, yeah, I'll I'll integrate it um, through that way what's interesting is my integration then went from a few lines of code to over a hundred easily just because of that very small usability change. So in effect, to get back to what you were saying earlier, I kind of do have many hundreds of lines of JavaScript code just to handle the Stripe side of.
0: Right. And that's just what the front end code then using what, what is their term for that? Uh, Like elements or something like that, like to build your own form.
1: Yeah, that that's the one. It's exactly that. It's elements. And um, yeah, I, Normally, when I think about stuff like this, I'm like, do you know what? This isn't worth it. I'm just going to do it their way. But because usability came into into mind, um, not accessibility, but usability, that's where I was like, hold on, no, I, I think that this could have an effect on conversion rate and such. So that's why I changed it.
0: Right. Have you ever looked into using something like, well, I guess this is brand new, but like Stripe's hosted checkout thing? Like they have something now where you go to a checkout page hosted on Stripe's domain and then it takes care of like collecting you know the person's name and the credit card number and all that stuff
1: yes and a big part so to be honest i think eventually maybe this year maybe next year i think i'm slowly going to be like hold on should i really be maintaining all this javascript code all this validation code all this error handling all these end-to-end tests by the way i have a lot of end-to-end tests and should i really be maintaining all that where i could delete it all and just redirect to them like i'm doing with paypal and part of me thinks that yes, I probably should and probably will do that. But for now there is a kind of nice, a nicety about hosting all on my page. Um, maybe that's a I f- I feel like that's a sort of a very naive view of things. And it's the sort of thing that a product manager might say or a marketing person, oh, it looks better when it's on our website. Um, but truth be told, that is how I felt at least at one point, And I've kept it like that for now, but I think you're right. Um, navigating to the Stripe checkout page is probably something on my roadmap.
0: Right. Well, I'm not saying that's necessarily better because I think just recently, like maybe a couple of weeks ago, they only just added support for discount codes. So like prior to that, you couldn't even use uh, any type of coupon codes in their checkout.
1: Oh no. Oh, I wonder if you could like, dynamically change the price of the, the product then.
0: Perhaps. Yeah. I've, I've never looked into it in super detail, but I just remember them announcing that, Hey, by the way, we can do discount codes now. And like, that seemed cool. So maybe it's something, yeah, to put off in the back burner, maybe look at it one day. So going back to your site here, is this all just one uh, monolithic application or do you have it broken up into a couple of different microservices?
1: Yeah, for me, it's all one one massive. Well, I say massive, it's not that big, um, but it is one repository. Um, there's absolutely no concept of microservices in this. Um, I have used microservices a lot at some of the places I've been, and I can see some of the benefits, definitely. But for me, you know, I'm just a single... I'm an independent developer, single person working on this. It probably doesn't make sense for me to do that right now.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with that one. As another solo developer, it's like, well, I just don't want to deal with dealing with like 11 different services. One one is hard enough. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So you mentioned, though, you know, kind of joking around that the site isn't that massive, but do you happen to know maybe like the scope of this app in terms of lines of code? Not super important to be specific, but ballpark.
1: Yeah. So last time I checked, it was around... 4,000, so maybe not too much. And what's um, what I found even more interesting is it's only 2,000 for the actual application code. Well, roughly 2,000, um, I'm ballparking here. So it's a roughly 50-50 split between application source code and my tests. So the end-to-end tests are, yeah, it effectively doubles the size. But in terms of application source code, it's roughly 2,000 lines of JavaScript and TypeScript code.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the tests that allow you to uh, sleep well at night. So probably well worth it.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah.
0: So speaking of that, though, I, you know, we all know that tests are good and they give you confidence to be able to refactor and stuff like that. Like, how often do you find yourself just hacking away on the code base, like making little changes for the better, maybe adding new stuff?
1: Um, pretty much. Well, you know, right now I'm working on this new course, so it's pretty much every day um, that I'm changing the back end of the course platform. In terms of the original course, Once I was done, I was only really focused on adding new content. So every now and then I would make a new video. I would type up some lesson notes. I would make sure I've got a good set of screenshots. And then when you do all that, you know, refactoring the CSS, for example, it seems relatively pale in comparison. It's kind of like, well, why am I doing that when I could actually make a brand new lesson? And that would be much more beneficial for my users. So I would tend to be focused on actual course content over, you know, refactoring or small enhancements that only a few people would notice. But that being said, um, again, with this new course, I am doing a much more of that sort of refactoring, um, adding these little enhancements, like um, lesson categorization, like I mentioned earlier. Um, So that's a, a lot more common now, but at the time over these last few years, I haven't been focused on that too much.
0: Right, Now going back to maybe like how your site is currently set up today, you mentioned lesson categorization between like difficulty right like beginner intermediate uh, do you have your lessons broken out to where they can be in like a specific section or a module like basically like kind of like chapters but for video courses or now?
1: um existing site n- none of that it was just a, a flat list of lessons new site um yeah i'm going pretty heavy down this categorization route i do hope at least one person appreciates it and it does help someone um it may also complicate things so I have to do some user testing around that, but the gist of it is you have a list of lessons um in my case it's it's represented as a json object structure and for every lesson, I'll have this kind of key this um yeah it's basically an array of of entities or categories that the lesson might fall under it might be based upon difficulty it might be based upon um lesson type where a type could be theoretical or practical or um, exercise-based, and the idea is I'm going to use all these, a combination of these various categorizations um, to do something pretty in the user interface side of things, and yeah, hopefully make that intuitive to the user to actually select what they want to do.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I've actually never even thought about doing that, like categorizing the lesson based on like if it's practical or just like, I don't know, theory or something else. Pretty cool. But speaking about uh, user interface now, do you want to get into maybe how your application is set up, like are you using server render templates with like just a tiny bit of JavaScript on the front end or is this like an API based app with a, you know, React or whatever on the front end?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty heavy with the server-side rendering. Um, I always have been. I think even in the cases where I was like investigating React and Angular and whatnot, I was still pretty heavy on making sure that they were server-side rendered, um, which I didn't achieve successfully by the way. But yeah, with this course, I there's no way I could have justified using um, a JavaScript framework just because it's so simple in what it is. It is quite literally a, it just feels it's a plain HTML page with a, um, what's Vimeo? I think it's an iframe. Uh, I'm using Vimeo, by the way, for the video hosting. So if I'm not mistaken, it's an iframe. And yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. I, I forget that you're also doing very similar things.
0: Yeah, no, Vimeo is uh, very nice for just getting videos out there pretty quickly and somewhat affordably.
1: Somewhat, yes. <laughs> when it's that simple, yeah, I couldn't justify using anything other than server-side rendered uh, HTML. Um, there is a little bit of JavaScript enhancement. Um, I try and stick with progressive, progressively enhanced components and make sure things de- degrade gracefully. And I think I've achieved that pretty well. So, but yeah, um, what, one thing that I haven't, succeeded with is stripe integration which we started talking about earlier because it looks like with the three i think it's called 3ds secure if i'm not mistaken
0: yeah like the strong customer authentication the sea stuff
1: that's it that's the that's the proper terminology for it the, so this strong customer authentication it really like changes the way that we have to now build our checkout flows which is is fine um but it does mean that in some cases you kind of have to use javascript at least for the integration that I was looking at, um, it's possible that Stripe offer like older, more traditional techniques, but it seemed that you can't you couldn't really avoid using JavaScript. So the way I've got it set up right now, everything is server side rendered, but when it comes to that one Stripe uh, form, that's you know it's effectively embedded in my website, um, that does rely on JavaScript. But the PayPal checkout, fortunately, that's um, that's just a regular hyperlink, so no JavaScript needed there.
0: Right. So if you are using the new SCA stuff, that probably means you're using like the payment intense API endpoint.
1: Yes. Oh, you you know this um, off the top of your head? Yeah, I think it's exactly that one. And it's all client side, which is it's funny because I came from Braintree and Braintree, who um, if I'm not mistaken, is actually owned by PayPal. They have some affiliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was using Braintree before Stripe. And it's incredible the the, the way they differ is very, very significant because with Braintree you could do everything entirely server side you can actually execute the payment on the server and um, in other words in Node.js code and yeah you can verify it and all that stuff and I think they even have a nice like progressively enhanced way of doing the strong customer authentication but then as you say for Stripe you have to use this payment intent stuff and I think it's more suited for the, the front end in other words client-side JavaScript it's at least it's a lot more easier that way um, but yeah, because of that, that's why I'm doing it on the front end.
0: Right. And then you get to deal with all the fun stuff of dealing with like asynchronous payments and setting up URLs that people can click, like if they have to like authenticate through email, like, yeah, it's all sorts of crazy stuff now.
1: Ugh, yeah. Don't get me started. And then on top of all that, you have to do a validation as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm actually not super familiar with the Node ecosystem. Like I know Express expresses, I- I've used that way back in like, The way, way, way back days when TJ Holloway Chuck used to run the show there, but I'm not familiar with like what server templating systems are still available in the Node ecosystem. Like, are you using what is that one, like EJS or something like that, or is there something else?
1: Yeah, EJS is one of them. I'm using uh, Handlebars, which is it's just because I'm used to it. It's not, I mean, I don't think it's bad. I don't necessarily think it's the best thing I've used, but I'm used to it. I'm comfortable with it, and it's not got any major limitations. So. Yeah, Handlebars for me. Um, I there was even a point where I was thinking of using Mustache, which for those who haven't heard of it, it's think of it as logicless templates. Um, yes, it is what it sounds like. So a bit opinionated in that sense, but yeah, ha- Handlebars is a nice um, middle ground. I think in some areas I've started moving to Nunjucks just because it um, it's got a bit more of a functional approach, which I which I benefit from. So possibly by the end of this year I will fully Moved over to Nandrax by by Mozilla, I believe. Actually, um, they're the ones who make that.
0: Well, you also missed another really big benefit of that one. Like the name is just a lot cooler. I think
1: Nandrax. Oh, of course, yeah. It makes me sound uh, a lot more, lot more proper as well, as opposed to handlebars. What's that? Is that a kind of apparatus? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So going back to your app, though, you know, we've talked a little bit about the back end and the front end. Do you have any like uh, interesting front end features? that you use, like, you mentioned that you are doing some type of progressive JS, but kind of didn't give any examples, like, are you using WebSockets anywhere in this app to maybe push some stuff to the client, or no?
1: In this case, again, for something as simple as a a course platform, I don't think I, I don't even think I have a use case for WebSockets, like, even if I wanted to, I'm not sure where I would, um, unless it was for a demo, maybe that's the one case I would, if I had like an interactive demo, Um, my course is all about DevTools, DevTools does WebSocket debugging, so maybe I could have a a page that uses it, but, um, no, there's, there's actually none of that fancy, fancy stuff going on right now.
0: Nice. Yeah. I like it. Just keep it simple because it works and, you know, you can still sprinkle in a little bit of client side JS to make things nice. And by the way, can you just rattle off maybe one or two examples of what you are doing progressive JS for?
1: Yes. Um, if anyone listening, maybe, maybe they'll, they'll see it soon on one of my new courses, but I've got these, I guess you would describe them as radial progress bars. and um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the term. So it's like this um
0: like the pills or whatever.
1: Yeah, pills um it's if if you've ever run lighthouse on one of your websites it's the you know that little animation that circular animation that comes up to tell you what score you've got. Um it's effectively a circular progress bar. Is the best way I can describe it or radial. The very easy approach is for me to copy sorry to include the javascript plugin which creates those and embed it on my website. Um I'm using it for some marketing copy that I've got and that that would work that would be great but so what, what i've actually had to go and do is i've completely rewritten it to use svg in the actual server side um, code in the html so it's an svg progress bar and that's sitting there and if you disable javascript that will display just fine and it will be all good and dandy but the actual animation and the um i guess effectively the enhancement i was trying to think of a better term but that is i think that's an accurate terminology to use the enhancement kicks in when JavaScript actually loads, and the enhancements in particular are again animation and some interactivity where you do something and the um, the progress changes.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds uh, very cool. Maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk about the rest of your tech stack. So you know you are using Node on the back end, we know that. I think you actually also mentioned TypeScript in there. Is is the back end pure TypeScript or is it kind of just like a little bit here and there?
1: No, it's a bit here and there, as you say. Bit of a hybrid, I guess. I'm using, I think, for the client side JavaScript. That's all. Yeah, that's just straight up JavaScript. For some of the payment stuff, I was just like, hold on. I, you know, if I'm taking people's money, I don't want to mess around with that. Um, so, I, you know, it's very well tested. It's very well, um, it's strongly typed. It's very modular. It's all, yeah. I want to remove any possibility of me introducing a bug when I'm dealing with money. And one really nice thing about the Stripe, um. Stripe node module is they've got these it's really cool. Um I don't know how to describe it because I've never seen it before. But when you instant instantiate it, um in other words you call it with the new keyword, I think, uh you can pass a string which and that string is the API version that you want to use of their um of their package. And you do this obviously uh you you know in a TypeScript code. Then what's cool is all the like the autocomplete and auto suggestions they're based on that string that API version string that you typed in earlier and yeah this is a little side note but I think it's it's really cool how they've done that
0: wow that actually sounds uh, very amazing <laughs> yeah exactly i am now jealous <laughs> thanks <laughs> now speaking of uh, front end code a little bit more i guess before we go into your tech stack we didn't get a chance to talk about like what you use to manage your static files and assets. Do you use something like Webpack or Gulp or Grunt or another one, perhaps?
1: Yeah, for me, it's a pretty massive, um, embarrassingly massive Gulp file. Um, when, when I was first starting out, I was like, oh, this is great. This is going to be really intuitive. And I really like the, I guess you would call it declarative approach. Um, yeah, declarative. I really like that approach and it's going to be really readable. The problem is it is readable, but it's extremely long and like verbose in, in what it's doing because, you know, it's taking images, it's optimizing them, it's versioning them. Um, and by versioning, if you don't know for anyone listening, you, you know, you take your um, logo.png, but that logo, um, if you want to cache bust it, sometimes you append a query string, which is fine, but sometimes you might also want to rename the file based on the, the actual hash content and yeah i'm I'm doing that in my got file along with a few other things, so it works. it's good. I like what it does um, there's a lot of live reload stuff happening a lot of source map generation um, I publish source maps on my website so people can hopefully learn um, I'm using a rollup for the uh, asset oh, sorry JavaScript concatenation and yes yeah, SAS for the I'm, I'm looking through it now SAS for the um style compilation and nodemon which is used locally only. PM2 is used on the server, which we can talk about later. But locally, it's using a tool called NodeMon, which watches your file system and then restarts Node when it detects a change. And all of that is um, contained within this one Gulp file.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a lot going on, but uh, a lot of good stuff that you kind of need. Now, going back, though, to what you said before about, you know, cache busting, I guess, adding like MD5 tags to your file names. How do you deal with that? at the server-side template level? Because wouldn't that also need to know that, oh, by the way, this logo.png, you know, on disk or whatever, it's really like logo.a55e.png or whatever?
1: Yeah, that's a a really good point that you've raised. And it's cool of you to actually catch that out because I know, I I remember very well, the first time I did it, my brain totally did not compute that that was going to happen. And I like naively deployed it and things broke but um, in in this case, and in fact, in a few other cases I've seen, the plugin that I'm using, it dumps this JSON file, which maps the original file name to the hashed file name. So it's a JSON file and it's basically the string mappings. And um, so it will have logo.png as the key and the value for that key will be logo-1234.png. Now that JSON file is actually a, a public asset. Um, if you knew the URL, you could see it on my website. And my um my nunjux slash handlebar templates, um, they they have a function available to them and I think it's literally called hashed. Um I call that template function, I pass in logo.png and it checks that JSON file and it returns me the um the hashed version.
0: Nice. Yeah, the only reason I know that offhand is because uh, I developed an extension for Flask that allows you to read that, you know, that JSON file like a manifest file. But I was curious like it sounded like you were doing it all completely client side and, and maybe your server side non templates didn't know how to deal with that, but it looks like uh, they have that built in, which is nice to see.
1: Oh, I got you. Oh, that's cool that you you made your own. Yeah, the one I'm using is called gulp dash rev-rewrite.
0: Going back to your site here, maybe now we can talk a little bit more about your tech stack. So do you happen to use something like Docker in development or production? Like also like what database do you use and, and things like that?
1: Yeah, maybe talking a bit more about the sort of the back end or the orchestration of that. Um, I have looked at Docker, and I made this really fun, like, hello world, and it was all working perfectly. Um, I've got a a NAS, a network-attached storage device, um, at home, and I even, like, had a thing where I was deploying these Node.js apps to that just to make sure I completely understood how things worked and I got the hang of effectively continuous deployment. And then right when I was about to to actually um, use it for my own website, I was like, hold on, is this going to add possibly a layer of indirection, which I don't need at this point? And I came to the conclusion that it would. Um, I still think it's a really cool piece of technology. Um, It has some amazing security benefits, and it's not as coupled to the operating system, which I happen to be using in production. So there are some very significant benefits of using it, but um, for, for the reason that I just mentioned, I decided not to use Docker.
0: Okay. What about uh, like persisting your data? Which database do you use?
1: Database is all SQL Lite, um, which I am a massive fan of. Like, I, I can't believe how wonderfully easy it is to use. Um, I'm using SQL Lite with NEX K N E X, which is kind of like the ORM for SQL Lite.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of neat to see that SQLite is is really like. It, it's. I don't want to say it's getting popular because it's been around for most other databases, but. It's cool to see that people are actually using it in production for real things. Cause I remember uh, a couple episodes ago, another course creator had a, a video course platform up, and he was also using SQLite. And you know, he was still dealing with like you know, 10,000 plus visitors on his site. So it's it's nice to see that it can hold up for pretty much anything, within reason.
1: Yeah, and every now and then you'll read an article that it's um it's also part of some embedded device, like a, I don't know, a, a smartwatch might actually be using it. So. Yeah, I think it's a great, great technology.
0: Yeah. So before choosing SQLite, did you kind of like look at alternatives and you kind of just figured, well, you know, for my use case, SQLite will do it and I have experience, so I'm just going to roll with that.
1: Okay, so in terms of possibly evaluating other database tools, um, I did. And to make a long story short, when I was sort of finishing with education, I did that route that I think a lot of students sometimes take where you find a local business, they need a website and you resort to WordPress. Now, WordPress is often connected to MySQL, and that was where my experience lied when it came to databases. Um, I knew how to set it up, I knew how to do the server administration side of things, and by default, I was going to do that. But there's a catch. When you invest investigate the security implications of MySQL, it's it's a pretty big deal. Um, it's not something trivial, and, and it's not something to take like to take light heartedly. Um, for example, you have to do. You just have to be conscious that you have this port that's exposed. Do you change the port? You know, what about the root user and all these things? And when I compared all of, all of that against a simple flat file that just sits on the file system, like SQLite, I thought it was a no-brainer and I decided to to use SQLite for my, my course
0: platform. Right. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Pretty scary business running your own database, especially if you plan to host it on a different server than like where your web app is hosted on.
1: True. That's another thing. Yeah. And, you know, do you use something hosted and what are the implications of using that? And um, how do you also deal with things in your local environment? I think that's a, another interesting thing to think about there because if you are using a cloud service, I think there's mLabs for MongoDB or whatever. You know What happens in your local environment? Do you then have to pay extra for a, I don't know, a, a separate database? Or well, all, all I know, like while I can't comment on that too much, what I do know is for SQLite, it's incredibly trivial to the point where I haven't even had to think about it.
0: Right. It's basically just, well, the file goes there and if I want to back it up, well, I just copy the file and that's it.
1: <laughs> yeah, precisely that.
0: Now, other parts of your tech stack maybe. Um, do you use anything like Redis for caching or anything like that or no, or possibly, so, you know, this is going to show my node inexperience, but are there any libraries that you might use for like doing background work, like processing queues and stuff like that?
1: No. So purely from Okay, remember that mentality we were talking about earlier where I just wanted to get something out there? Mm-hmm. Well, I tried to follow on that mentality, and there are definitely things that could be put into queues and whatnot, but purely for the sake of speed, I haven't. And when I say speed, I mean uh, personal speed, not, not speed of the application. Now, But it's interesting you bring it up because what I'm slowly starting to realize is that actually having a job queue would actually be a very powerful thing. Um to give a practical example, when um, if a company, let's say, they can purchase a team license to my course. Okay, great. Now the person the person who purchases that course, they will sometimes give me a list of email addresses to, for me to manually add. So I go to my admin dashboard and I add all those email addresses and not necessarily in batch, but more as if in parallel, each one of those email addresses will be emailed out a, um, a course registration link, essentially, just a, a thing to for them to set their passwords with. What I realized is if my course goes down at any point, those emails are just lost forever. Another example is actually when someone purchases the course, if my email provider service, if they go down, um, that person doesn't really have anything to prove that they made the, the purchase. Now this goes back to the concept of a queue, because if I can put that into a queue, I have that confidence that my course platform can go down, but when it restarts, it will check the queue, and if there's some jobs pending, it can do them on uh, on server restart, essentially. But to actually get to the technologies and whatnot, um, I've planned it out. Um, it's kind of in progress. It's in a branch, pretty much, but it's <laughs> it's pretty much a table in my SQLite database. Um, it's called jobs, and I'm going to add, for every one of these emails, I'm going to add a new database row, when the server starts up, I'm going to check for any pending jobs and, well, execute them.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds uh, really interesting. Now, when it comes to setting that up, though, are you going to be coding that behavior from scratch? Or is there a specific node library for that? Because I know earlier in this podcast, you talked about, you know, potentially maybe using Ruby on Rails. Like, it just seems like every language and framework seems to have, like, you know, a blessed background processing tool like Sidekick with Rails or Celery with Python or Open with uh, Elixir. Like, is there anything like that for Node or no?
1: Funnily enough, I would say no. Um, there are absolutely projects out there on GitHub with like ten thousand plus stars, where it's like this is how you do um, whatever it is, you know, job processing. But the thing with all these is it's very much a um, a plugin. It is plug and play. Like you install it, you npm install it, and you start using it. It's great. But I wouldn't say it's blessed. Whereas with things like from what i remember things like rails and um i think php has is it laravel and or symphony or whatever i think they do have blessed approaches wherein in the node.js ecosystem i wouldn't describe any of these as blessed i would describe them as popular and absolutely they work but definitely not blessed and they do all have their own little set of constraints that unfortunately you have to learn learn the hard way and um this is often some of the controversy that um the node.js ecosystem generates.
0: Right. P- perhaps I should have been a little more clear with my wording. Like I-, I guess they're blessed in the sense that the community thinks or uses these in practice, but not necessarily exclusively. Like it's not like the framework provider said, "Oh, only use this one," but they just tend to be like, you know, more popular than the other alternatives, I guess.
1: I got you. Um then in that case, I would say I think you mentioned this earlier. I would say Redis is kind of the blessed approach. So you have you have Redis, the, the key value store, but then on top of that, you've got a lot of fairly popular node modules that basically give you that um, interaction layer with Redis and they'll kind of handle all of that job queue processing for you. Uh, the the name slips me right now, but there are quite a few of them out there.
0: Okay. Now, earlier you mentioned that, you know, you do send a decent amount of emails out, especially when it comes to like team licensing. Uh, which transactional email service do you use for that?
1: I'm currently using Postmark app. Um, I was using SparkPost previously, but then they changed their. I'm pretty sure I was using their free plan actually. I don't think I ever paid SparkPost any money, which is funny considering the amount of value they gave to me. But yeah, um, they changed their free plan, and I was like, well, if I am going to pay for a service, let me make sure it's it's the right service. Um, and I went to Postmark, Postmark app, and it's it's absolutely fantastic from a from every perspective, from customer support to the dashboard to the deliverability rates um, I think it's really great but uh, I have actually had a, a funny little issue very recently which kind of touches upon why this job queue stuff is so important um, very recently I was actually doing a chat with someone on Zoom and while we were chatting I was like all right I'm going to do this I'm going to set you up with this course um, I don't normally do these chats I, it was a coincidence that they were purchasing a course and we had a little arrangement shall we say Now, while we were chatting on Zoom, I was like, okay, great. You should get the email right now. It turns out behind the scenes, Postmark were just completely failing um, left, right, and center. Um, It was actually on their status page. So it was a little embarrassing because that was a potential customer. Well, it was was a customer. And um, it's funny how sometimes these services, they have great marketing. They have great, um, I guess, a great reputation. But yeah, downtime is still very much a thing when it comes to email providers.
0: Yeah, it's also a really good point too, to bring up, I think, just that like, I don't know about you, but for me, when I've dealt with 3rd party platforms where they're providing an actual service, like let's say your course platform, if you, if something critical doesn't work about the platform and your customers are emailing you and asking like why this thing doesn't work. I don't know. It always feels like super lame to me just to, to place the blame on someone else to be like, oh, well, Postmark is, is not working or oh, PayPal is down. So what can I do about it? Like, do you find yourself struggling on how to deal with customers when those things arise? Like, I feel like it's like, you should probably take responsibility for the downtime, let people know that, hey, you know, by the way, like Postmark's API is down, there's not much I can do. But I, I definitely have used products in the past, I'm not going to name them here, where they were very dismissive of like, well, our platform's amazing. And these people are down like that type of stuff.
1: Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. I think having the attitude of, you know, you're responsible, like we're responsible, the sellers, um, for, for the services that we choose to use. I think having that sort of attitude and not trying to shift blame is great. Um, I also think there's an element where in the interest of transparency, um, you can sometimes reveal who it is um, who failed. But yeah, d- definitely having that attitude like, you know what, I chose to use that service. Um, I, I did the research. I, c- I considered that they were worth it. Um, and now that they failed, well, I'm going to take responsibility. I think that's a, a really good attitude to have. And I think it goes a long way with um with, with showing honesty and integrity to your customers.
0: Yeah. No, I like the transparency part too. I feel like developers probably just as a whole are one of the most like super understanding people, as long as you like tell it straight to them, like try not to just, you know, don't lie to them. If you just let them know how it goes, like it's still relatable when like, oh, well, you know, postmark was down, like they'll understand that.
1: Yeah, and it's an educational lesson as well.
0: Yeah, and then you can like arrange that to be some blog post content. So it helps you out in the end, almost, maybe. (laughs) So going back to your site here, uh, we've been talking for quite a while on like how it's been developed and stuff like that. Maybe now we can talk a little bit how it is hosted. So where do you have your site hosted at?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm using DigitalOcean, which I've used for the longest time. I've also used Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E, and there are two... Two providers, which I'm really happy with. i um, DigitalOcean is versus Linode. Uh, I'm not particularly strong in either way, but I've just been happening to use DigitalOcean for a long time. Um, they're great. You know, I can't complain about five dollar droplets as they call them. Um, and they've also got backups built in for I think a few dollars extra.
0: Right. So speaking of uh, five dollar droplets, is that what you run?
1: Yeah. Um, I think for most of my projects, they are. You know what? I'm glad you asked that because it's interesting. Only very recently have I had to bump that up to a $10 droplet. Yeah, now you remind me. So I've always been on $5 droplets, but only very recently I got this random error, which I've started getting these random errors to do with performance um, with some of my other apps, not to do with the the course platform. And just to be clear, I am running multiple multiple Node.js apps on this one droplet. And I still don't know if these errors are to do with um, like limitations of the droplet that I've chosen or possibly the more likely alternative I'm using APIs in maybe unintuitive or just flat out wrong ways. Whatever it is, um, as a quick solution, I just bumped up that droplet size, paid the extra money, and it is all working right now. And there's a little action note for me to go and go and fix that and possibly if I can downgrade that droplet and save a bit of money
0: right wow you definitely uh you're adventurous to say the least like running multiple apps on like your golden course platform server that's uh, kind of cool to see
1: <laughs> yeah i figure it's um i mentioned you know it's an educational opportunity earlier for for being transparent about which services go down um it's kind of how i live my life uh it's you know everything is driven by by learning new things and i figure do you know what if the idea that other services can interfere with this one, like production grade service, well, that's just an opportunity for me to really harden this one, um, this one production grade service, and so far it's it's worked out pretty well.
0: Nice, yeah, I am happy to hear that it's working out because I'm a big fan of DigitalOcean as well, and like you say, versus like. Uh... Linode, right? It's like good versus good, right? I think they're both definitely great services, but yeah, personally, I'm a, uh, I am do use Do. Do you happen to use anything besides their droplet for hosting this site? Like, do you use like their hosted DNS and maybe even uh, the spaces service as well?
1: No, um, I don't fully, like, maybe it's because my, my platform isn't complicated enough. I don't fully know the use cases, why someone would use that. I'd be curious, like, why would someone use spaces?
0: Oh, Spaces is like the uh, S3 alternative, but hosted on DigitalOcean. It's, it's mainly for just static files, right? If you want to have them uh, hosted from a CDN, basically, because Spaces gives you a free CDN.
1: Oh, true. Okay, or well, maybe, for example, like user-generated files, or like if they're uploading profile pictures, you might want to store it there.
0: Yeah, that is one spot, and then maybe even like your asset bundles as well, like your CSS and JavaScript.
1: True. I should definitely look into that, but no, so far... Um, it's just sitting there on the file system along with the, the code base. And um, it's, yeah, I've got some web servers which are actually serving those up.
0: Okay, now as for the server, uh, do you wanna let us know what distro you picked?
1: Yes, okay. This is where I expose my, um, my lack of server administration knowledge. But if by distro you're referring to like the Linux distribution, that would be- Yeah, like
0: is it Debian, Ubuntu, CentOS, something else?
1: True, yeah, that would be uh, Ubuntu, and I think it's LTS, so whatever the most recent LTS is, um, yeah, I, I just stuck with that, and then if, if one day they release an upgraded one, I'll, I'll definitely move to that.
0: Right, so when you say the most recent LTS, is that most recent as of when you put this server up two or so years ago, or did you recently like upgrade the server?
1: Oh, sorry, uh, yeah, that's a good point, actually, because... if to- <laughs> This is a very weird approach to do it in, but whenever I see like a Hacker News article saying, oh, like new Ubuntu has been released, I'm like, oh, now's the time to upgrade. And that's that's my prompt. That's my trigger um, t- to bump up that LTS version. Um, So to answer the question, I have upgraded it since, since I actually released the course platform. I don't remember when the last time was. I should actually check. I am indeed using the latest LTS though.
0: Right, yeah, I think 20.04 came out in April of 2020. I'm pretty sure.
1: Okay, in which case, no, I wouldn't be on that version. It would probably have been the previous version,
0: right? Probably 1804, because that's been around for a while, but still totally under like the maintenance, you know, releases. It's, it's not considered like obsolete yet.
1: Yeah, and they've always got their fun quirky, quirky code names for it, don't they?
0: Yep. So on the server, then you mentioned you are running PM2. I know that's some type of like process management tool, I guess, for Node specifically, but is that all you manage your process with? Like, do you use systemd as well or no? Uh,
1: no. Um, so it's pretty much PM2. And I don't know too much about systemd, but if I'm, well, if I'm understanding correctly, PM2 kind of, it's designed to work out of the box with minimal um, configuration. So you, once you've installed it and you've pointed it to a an actual index.js file, um, it, the idea is it's meant to be good to go, including uh, on server restart. So, I'm not too familiar with system D, but if it's to do with startup scripts, I'm pretty sure that PM2 actually configures that for you out of the box. So when your server does restart, it will start itself up.
0: Okay. Yeah. No system D is one of those things where, uh, we can talk about it for an hour. It is much more than just process management, but yeah, that is one thing it does like that's, its, I guess, primary focus, but PM2 though, is that a, like specific to node apps or can it be used for any programming language?
1: Um, it's definitely catered for no am I'm, If I'm not mistaken, you can do a bunch of things where you configure it with even a Ruby file or such. Um, essentially, it's executing a, a file. Um, it's very cool. So I haven't used it with other technologies, but it's definitely catered for no depths.
0: Okay, because I remember I spoke to someone. I, I, his name uh, escapes me, but it was from an episode like 30 episodes ago where he had a very like super high traffic node site, and he was using PM2. And when we started to talk about like downtimes and deploying and stuff like that, he said he was able to get away with just having, you know, kind of like you, where you just had one server running and PM2 allowed him to deploy new versions of his code without downtime. And it was very little effort to get that to work. Is that what you have set up as well or is it something different?
1: Oh, so that's um that's something I'm quite pleased with. I guess I'm quite proud about how I've got it got it set up. Um. <laughs> Not to give myself too much credit, I'm kind of patting myself on the back there. But I like it because it's very minimal downtime. So the idea is I git push, and that goes to my staging environment for a series of like post-receive hooks and whatnot. So there I've got my staging environment. It's sitting there. It's, it's only for me. Um, It's protected by something called Cloudflare Seats, I think it's called. Um, But anyway, that's my staging environment. To actually go f- to production is one rsync command. And not having much like Unix experience or server administration experience, I was quite surprised at how simple and easy it was because that one async command also does all the copying of the node modules folder, which is the heavy dependencies folder. But what's significant is that I'm not waiting for an NPM install. And because I've already done that in staging. Now, because all async is doing is copying files across to a production environment, it's actually pretty much instant. It's like, what, a second? Um, and so the downtime is essentially that. It's one second, which I think is great.
0: Right. Yeah, because usually, I mean, even in like a dockerized application where you're shipping the entire, everything related to the code needed to run, it still takes a couple of seconds for like the actual web server process to restart. So do you do you encounter like additional downtime when PM restarts the node server itself or no?
1: Oh, uh, Now that you say that, to be fair, maybe there is like hot, I don't know, half a second to a second. It's not much. Um, And this is one very big difference I've noticed when it comes to very vanilla Node.js applications over something like Ruby on Rails. Um, I'll never forget Ruby on Rails. I think I had it connected to something called Passenger, um, which was their PM2. (laughs) And I just remember that taking like over 10 seconds. But now you've got this really simple, like again, index.js file. Which does is not very complicated in what it does, and it uses a lot of built-in node modules for the web server, like um the actual HTTP module, and it does, again, very simple stuff. Um, you kind of feel the difference because again, it's it's yeah maybe one second, half a second to one second in startup time, I would say, and maybe an extra second for the async to copy across.
0: Right, like I guess this falls back to like your just philosophy of just getting things out there and going. Like I would imagine for you, and totally correct me if I'm wrong having that two or three seconds of downtime per deploy probably doesn't really affect you that much in your day-to-day, even if you decide to deploy your code base like once a day, right?
1: No, exactly that. Um, I am, I'm definitely not a Netflix here. Um, I'm just like a single developer working on a fairly, I, I would describe it as a low traffic website. And because of that, like, I'd be very surprised if anyone notices one to two seconds of downtime, even if I am deploying pretty much every day.
0: Yeah, because it is one of those things where it's like, well, you know, if someone goes and loads the course page because they already bought it and it doesn't work, you know, if you're deploying maybe this reload and the site's back to working. But like the only time I can see at least coming from like a course perspective or a course uh, platform perspective is like if someone is just at the checkout point and they just click the checkout button and now it like times out or something like that, like you may lose a sale there, but it's like the odds of that happening are very, very low, even if you are at a pretty good amount of traffic, I would say.
1: Yeah, I think you've nailed it there. That is probably one of the biggest risks that people like us have to be concerned about. Um, I remember when I was at Ministry of Justice, which is like a department in the the UK, a government department, they were very big on... Is it called... Is it blue-green deployment? Is that the right term?
0: Yeah, so where you're basically keeping two servers alive and then you just switch between them?
1: Yes, exactly. That's it. Um, And they did that through... I think it was kubernetes and they were like they were very big on it but i just thought it was, it was entertaining to me i was as a front end of there it was entertaining to me how much effort went into that it was like a truly big engineering feat um for them to develop that and uh, understandably so but yeah um fortunately or unfortunately depending on what perspective you're looking at i am not at their level of traffic and so i don't need to be concerned about that just yet
0: <laughs> right now, uh, you kind of joked around before saying, like, you know, you don't have a ton of experience setting up servers, but when it came to setting up this server itself, did you just, like, hand roll everything? Like, did you SSH in and then just, like, copy-paste commands from a tutorial? Or do you happen to to use some type of, like, configuration management tools, like Ansible or whatever?
1: Yeah, that's a good point, because um, you're bringing back some, some memories now from when I first set this up. And to be honest, it's all exactly the same. I haven't changed anything. So... You seem to have some familiarity with DigitalOcean, and you might be familiar with their documentation. Yep. Yeah. So for anyone who's not, um, go and check it out because some of their tutorials and docs are just incredible. They're very well written. Um, I guess they, I guess they're essentially paying com- the community to write some of these, which is why they've got such a large set. But their documentation spelled out everything I needed to do. Like I had absolutely no questions. I didn't need to go and Stack Overflow. It was copy and paste the whole way through, um, and it just worked. But um, all that being said, I I think I set this up once, and then for whatever reason, I was like, hold on, maybe it's a good practice to to tear all that down and make sure I can set this all up again. Um, that this was years back now. Um, you know, p- purely from a best practice perspective, because who knows? Maybe one day the server really does go down, or it gets hacked, and I have to start from scratch. I wanna make sure the process works. Then I realized rather than me sitting there and copying and pasting these commands, isn't there some sort of tool or technology I could use um, that helps accelerate this? And as you say, I think you mentioned Ansible, there are these technologies out there. Um, some of those felt a bit over my head. So I resorted to, to, resorted to something called server pilot. And right now, I I think they seem to be catered for PHP, if I remember correctly. But at the time, it worked perfectly. So the idea is you copy and paste the command that they give you. And by the way, in case you're, you know, you're looking at it and you're like, oh, this is outside my price range. I know for a fact that lots of free alternatives exist, but it, it was free at the time I was using it. Anyway, they give you this command, you paste it in, and that is it. That is the end of your um <laughs> of your server administration because what they do behind the scenes, they keep your VPS continuously updated. They deal with all the security updates, they install Apache, Nginx, um, and they do some virtual host configuration to make it easy for you to set up like more servers. They give you a web-based dashboard where you can actually, um, I, I don't know if server is the right te- terminology, but yeah, I would say server, um, but you can make this entity of a website on their dashboard, and they will, they will actually apply these configuration files in Nginx for you on your server, and it is it's one of the most coolest, like, services, um, software as a service that I've used in a, in a while, to be honest. Um, and it's all worked perfectly. I've never had a problem with it.
0: Yeah, I have not heard about them before, but it definitely sounds pretty interesting. And and he did mention Nginx there as well. Do you actually have Nginx running in front of your Node server on your server now?
1: Yes, um, exactly that. So I, at the time, I was like, hold on, all of that sounds like another layer of indirection why do I not just have my Node.js server sitting there and that can serve the files directly? But then you actually do some reading, you find out that for performance reasons, this is possibly not recommended. And I'm sure there are other reasons as well. So yeah, getting that um, Nginx sort of as a front end for the Node server, that seemed pretty important. And that's another reason I used that service that I mentioned.
0: So in that service then, do you configure Nginx just basically through a web UI, but you can do things like setting cache headers for you know those uh, cache-busted assets and like setting up Let's Encrypt for SSL and whatever?
1: No, that's one thing they don't do. They don't give you a web-based editor for the conf file, so you still actually have to go to your... You have to SSH into your box, and I think you go to the usual location where the nginx conf- configuration files are, and then I've got some... <laughs> possibly a combination of configuration files are copied from Stack Overflow, or htaccess or something that actually deals with all the cache busting stuff.
0: Right. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Like, Nginx is sort of kind of uh, not easy to configure the first time. But, like, once you get your config ironed out, it's like, well, if you ever want to deploy another site later, then usually you can just copy-paste that over to the next site. At most, you're just editing, you know, things like the server name directive, like, you know, the domain for the site. And that's kind of sort of it, maybe.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Uh, until this day, I've not had to change it from the first time I, I edited it. And also, that being said, the the service that I mentioned, they actually give you these kind of boilerplates that you can start out from, so you're not you're not completely in the dark,
0: right? Now, I could have sworn maybe five or ten minutes ago you did mention that you are using what what did you call it, like Cloudflare, Seats, or something like that? So, do you actually have Cloudflare set up in front of all of this then, acting as a CDN and SSL certs?
1: Yeah, pretty much that. Yeah, Cloudflare is in front of all of this, and they're claiming to save. Lots of bandwidth every month, which is great um, because it means I don't have to go over my quotas and yeah, um, that that just kind of sits there. Again, it's one of those services I feel where you set it up once and you don't have to touch it again. Um, so it's pretty good in that sense.
0: Right. Now, I guess going back to what you said before about like when would you ever want to use DigitalOcean Spaces? Like, I guess you wouldn't necessarily need to use it as a CDN then if you already have Cloudflare. But I mean... You could still use spaces, I guess, to store those user uploads and stuff like that if you didn't want to put them onto your file system.
1: Oh, true, okay. I think how you worded it, that really helped me understand it. So you said it's like an S3 alternative.
0: Yeah, in fact, I think it's S3 compatible like at the API level.
1: Oh, interesting, okay.
0: Yep, so going back though to your deploy process, you mentioned that you just uh, basically push directly to your server, right? And then you have like a post-receive hook from Git and that just like, you know, you have a bare repo in there basically and the post-receive hook uh, kicks off when you push code to it. Do you also push your code to GitHub or somewhere else? Because you did also mention way at the start of this talk about having a second developer, and you you know you kind of had to like restart the world but get because you had some secrets in there.
1: Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. So how you describe the the deployment process is spot on. But then also the GitHub, you're you're right to point that out. What I've been doing recently for my for the new course that I'm building is I'm gonna start using um, GitHub Actions as the I don't know what we say instead of middle man, middle person, if you like, the middle layer. Um, I'm going to start using GitHub Actions as the CI, basically. So instead of, on my local machine, instead of typing in git push, you know, website uh, main, um, which then goes directly to my VPS, my DigitalOcean Droplet, I'm instead going to git push origin main, and then that goes to GitHub. And then GitHub will execute the, um, you know, the pipeline through GitHub Actions. And finally... The very last step is I'm hoping to build all my assets there and then do an rsync from GitHub Actions to my server. But I have found some interesting quirks with that, and I'm not too sure if that's going to work perfectly, but that is my intention.
0: Right. I guess some of those quirks would be just maybe dealing with secret management. I guess it's not so much a quirk, but it's one more thing to think about.
1: True. It's one more thing to think about. I think that's totally manageable. So the quirk that I'm currently contemplating and trying to, Find out more about to see if anyone else has run into this is in Node land, in Node.js land, um, and I'm sure other, other services and, and technologies have the same problem. Using SAS as an example, yeah, SAS, the, the style sheet uh, preprocessor, I believe it uses something called native bindings. So when it gets installed, when you do npm install, um, it actually uses your kind of operating system to determine how to compile it. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm completely making some words up here, but hopefully I'm giving you the, the right gist of how it works. The issue is, if I install all of that, and um, I do that on GitHub Actions, which is running one particular environment, and then I sync all of that across to my VPS, which is running a different environment, I don't know if that native binary that gets compiled on GitHub Actions will then work on on my VPS. And that's the thing that I want to investigate.
0: Aha, that is a very good uh, quirk to bring up. Now, I'm not going to say with definitive answers on this one. But if you're using the same, like if you're using Ubuntu 18.04 on your GitHub Action server, and you're using Ubuntu 18.04 on your actual like server deploy, then I'm pretty sure like 99% sure you'll have no problem with that. But if you use a completely different operating system, potentially even a different version, then you may run into some trouble.
1: True. That's a good point. Maybe out of coincidence that the versions do match up and it will just work. But I think out of principle um, and out of like intuitiveness, I do kind of want this to be more foolproof, so to speak. Um, And so maybe even using something like Docker that we were talking about earlier, maybe that could help. Or maybe just, yeah, I'm not sure, maybe using some sort of orchestration management tool would help assist me.
0: Right. Now, going back to secret management, uh, what do you do now that you don't just have your secrets littered inside of your code base?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad that other person um, offered to help out because they were the trigger that I needed to remove that anti-pattern. Um, secret management right now is pretty much .env, which is a node module. Um, it's very popular in the Node.js ecosystem where it uses environment variables for um, for the secrets. and yeah, I, I, honestly, it's one again, and yet another one of those things where when you first set it up and you get it working, you kind of don't have to touch it again. Um, the only overhead is maybe having to paste in the. Um, every time you add a new environment variable, I actually have to go to my server and paste it in a, a secret location. But apart from that, it just works. And yeah, that's how I manage my secrets.
0: Nice. Yeah, you can never go wrong using uh, environment variables. So maybe now we can move on to talking about how you plan for disasters or unexpected events. Uh, you did mention that you do have DigitalOcean configured to do, one of, you know, like an automated backup, but do you do anything else in between there as well, like maybe manually backing up your SQLite database every, I don't know, six hours or every day or whatever?
1: No, unfortunately, it's something I've never really, you know, out of all the things that you have to do when um, dealing with a course that you're, you're self-hosting um it's just one of those things that got put on the um on the backlog and i never really looked at again um it would be interesting to hear if you've you've done anything but from my perspective i don't think it's something i've even begun to think about just because i know that there are some solutions out there it's about knowing where do i place the file you know do i send it to s3 do i have to follow some important backup policies um yeah, I don't know. I just think there's so many questions and I haven't even begun to think about it, to be honest.
0: Right. Yeah, it's one of those things where you can just do a SQL dump or I guess in your case with SQLite, you would just copy the entire database to, you know, S3 or DigitalOcean Spaces. Or if you're still sticking with DO, they have the um, the block storage as well. So that kind of just gives you like uh, an external drive, basically, that you can connect to your droplet, where if your droplet goes away, that stuff on that drive still exists.
1: Oh, maybe that's exactly what I what I'll look at then. Yeah, that sounds good.
0: Yeah, or you can even go completely like, I'm not going to say maniac mode because it's totally valid, but you can just take your database and SCP, basically copy it from your server onto your dev box and then maybe back it up to an external drive that you have connected to your computer or, you know, Dropbox or wherever you want.
1: True. <laughs> that will be, um, you know, I do like approaches like that in the sense that you can do it quickly and it's a little overhead. Um, So maybe I can actually get started with that, but then as a future-proof solution, I can look into that DigitalOcean approach that you mentioned.
0: Right. So it sounds like though with this course platform at least as of today there probably isn't any user generated files like avatars and stuff like that, right? Uh, no, no user generated. Okay. So you don't have to worry about backing stuff like that up. Now, on the DigitalOcean side, did you configure any of those like alerting things based around like the health of your server? Like you can get emailed if the CPU load goes above, you know, 80% for 5 minutes or, you know, things like that. Like you can actually configure metrics like that?
1: Another one of those things that's on the backlog, I think in terms of, you know, staying up to date with the the state of your application, all I've really done is used updown.io, a third-party service to monitor, well, the uptime, um, and I've configured it to look for a certain word in my page to make sure that things are actually being rendered, because it's not good enough just to know it's a 200 um, response code. Apart from that, I haven't looked at any of the um, DigitalOcean alerting mechanisms, but I'm glad you reminded me because I should definitely do that.
0: Right, yeah, that's always like an easy win there. I think it's like right there in their dashboard, it's five minutes of configuration, maybe even less and done. Now thinking about uh, errors though, and you know, unexpected events, maybe something goes wrong with the application. How do you get notified if uh, like your app starts to throw a 500 for just a specific endpoint that might not be caught by that? Uh, what was that service you said? If up, down, whatever it was, uh, the optime checker? Uh, up, down IO do you have anything in place like at the node level or like, do you get emailed if something throws a 500 or do you just like SSH into your server and look at logs occasionally?
1: Yeah. It's the latter. Um, unfortunately, I've never been very disciplined about things when it comes to, yeah, log management. Um, I've always been, yeah, let me just SSH into the box and just dump out the logs and well browse them, um, which is a very inefficient way of doing it, but it's worked for me at best. I think one one good thing I do is I have these like session IDs so I can actually trace the steps that a user has taken throughout the site. Um, so that's one good thing, I guess, that I'm doing. But I think you're right to ask about sort of services because I, I really want to move to that. I think it makes life a lot more easier. Um, and one service I've been considering is Sentry. Um, they, they seem to have a def- decent integration. So I'll definitely consider that for both the Node.js code and the client-side JavaScript code. And that can hopefully alert me to errors as soon as they happen, as opposed to me just randomly saying, oh, you know, I've got some free time. Let me SSH into my box and browse for for errors, because that's a pull mechanism, whereas what I'm really looking for is a push mechanism.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's funny. It's like, well, you know what? Saturday morning, 7.32 a.m., I'm just going to SSH into my server and check to see if maybe there's an error.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, we, we all say that to ourselves at some point, don't we?
0: <laughs> right. Now, I guess, though, in your case, um, if something really were to go wrong, like the course player stopped working like that page, like your users would probably email you pretty fast, right?
1: Precisely that. Yeah, that that's, um, I didn't want to say it because it, it kind of felt like a, I'm cheating or it's the easy way out. But it's exactly true. Um, And it's what I said at the start, if you do kind of have that following, it especially really helps because people they support you, and they care about, you know, your success, uh, your success is also their success as cheesy as that sounds. So um, in addition to the fact that they've paid good money for something and they they deserve to have that be functional, um, sometimes people also just care about seeing you succeed. And yeah, they'll tell you if something's slow, if something's inefficient, if you can add this little extra feature, or more importantly, if the video player goes down.
0: Right. Yeah, I know that's very well said. And on that note, like, what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this platform?
1: Uh, Don't be afraid to build things from scratch because it's been one of the most enjoyable learning opportunities I've experienced. Um, only recently I was hearing about, I think it was Gumroad or one of these services where you can sell your product online and they just do everything for you. They're changing their PayPal integration and that may affect some people negatively. You know, I, I don't want to comment if that's good or bad, but one thing I do know is I'm in total control of that behavior because I've built it from scratch with a fairly vanilla approach. And because of that, it gives me you know, a great deal of confidence it's more work, don't get me wrong, but it's taught me a lot, and it gives me that confidence that I can adapt and you know shift the course platform in any way I so choose at any point in time. And so that's definitely one one big lesson. Don't be afraid to build from scratch and use it as a good learning opportunity.
0: Yeah, that is definitely uh, great advice. Cause I'm I'm with you on that front. Like I would much rather write I don't know whatever a couple of hundred lines of code rather than use some like third-party integration, especially if it's like an API integration. Like it needs to be really critical to my business to even consider using it. Like sure, like Stripe's API, 100% needed, but probably not going to offload like user authentication to another service. Yeah. Cool. So Omar, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, YouTube, GitHub profile, anything like that?
1: Um, you can find me pretty much everywhere with my username U-M-A-A-R. um a a r. Even my name is spelt with one a. Um, someone always gets that username, so I, in a very childlike behaviour, I just added letters until it worked. <laughs> um, but typically, that's um that you'll find me on GitHub, Twitter, my personal website, um, my course that we've been talking about is moderndevtools.com. Um, my new course is learnbrowsertesting.com, which is all about, as it is as it sounds like, browser testing and browser automation. And yeah, go, go and check the stuff out. Um, I work on a mailing list as well called Dev Tips, where I've sent out a good few hundred emails by now, um, all about little, you know, little short videos on how to use something in DevTools. So that's completely free and feel
0: free to check that out. Nice, yeah, I'll make sure to drop all those into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production Podcast You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.